For those of you that are joining us, maybe for the first time you're out, you're online, whatever it may be, uh, we're journeying through the Sermon on the Mount. This is week seven of the Sermon on the Mount, and we are on verse 21 through 26 in Matthew 5, as we just read. Um, to give us some review, last week we ended with Jesus' thesis statement, which as we saw was jam-packed with all sorts of ideas. Today he's going to start unpacking that for us. Last week this thesis statement was, hello daughter, welcome, so glad you're here. Um, uh, sorry, I got distracted by my own flesh and blood there in the middle there. Uh, but nonetheless, his thesis statement was, was basically this, right? That you have to have a righteousness that surpasses or exceeds that of the Pharisees. And that righteousness is going to come through Jesus of Nazareth, who one of his purpose statements in life was to fulfill the Old Testament. How will we have that righteousness? It will become through the fulfillment, the righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, through the fulfillment of the Old Testament through Jesus. Now that, that whole concept needs explanation, and Jesus begins to understand and help us understand what that concept looks like by these verses today. So he says, basically, you, you, you've heard it said, but now I tell you. And there are six statements where he starts to unpack these examples of what it looks like to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. It's not just these baseline external things. It's something more that, that resonates in our heart, that originates in our heart. So he is going uh, to truly help us understand this. And so let me just kind of bring this down because I have a tendency to uh, miss the forest for the trees when I'm preaching. And so I want to just kind of give us a bottom line here on the basics on how he's going to help us understand what the righteousness of the Pharisees truly means. So for them, it was an external uh, obedience that resulted in pride. Okay, so if you can picture this, and I know this will be hard to find out, but those that obey God get blessed by God. And those that get blessed by God, their lives seem to work out better than those that don't. That's kind of the picture of the Pharisees, that they're obedient, and therefore God is blessing them, and their blessing is looking like, financial uh, uh, blessing and marital blessing and all sorts of um, societal blessing, whatever it may look like. And so Jesus is looking at that and reshaping it for us to understand that's actually not what flourishing and blessing looks like within the kingdom of heaven. There's something far greater than that. And so Jesus is going to challenge us to not depend on or look for that level of righteousness. And in so doing, he levels the playing field for us to go beyond not murdering. So we all probably can go, okay, cool, I'm good with the not murdering part. Most of us. And what Jesus is going to tell us is, actually, you're not good at all, and he's going to level the playing field, not to the haves and the have-nots of God's blessing, but for all of us who don't ever deserve God's blessing. Because it's not about not murdering, it's about not being angry. And now all of a sudden, even when we were reading that, uh, I, there's just a little bit of like, oh gosh, this is, this is real. When he starts to pull in, like you are liable to judgment, you're liable to counsel, you're liable to the fires of hell if we give ourselves to this type of life. See, the Pharisees missed the point of God's law by making it all about external obedience and instead of the affection of their heart. They measured success based on their adherence to a very low standard. So for me, I think about how this happens in my own home. I don't know how your house is, but this is how my house is. Uh, so one daughter in particular of mine tends to leave their socks all over the house. 
and I'm not going to name any names, but, uh, but nonetheless, there's socks all over the house. So we get to the point in the week where, oh, uh, anyways, we get to the point in the week where I just start making them pay money to get their socks back, because um, that's how we roll, or they just get their socks, and they still got to pay money, it doesn't matter, either way, I'm getting my money back, and that's fine, but the whole point of the story is, this is kind of like not murdering, is when I go around the house, and I pick up all the socks, or she picks up all the socks, and then I go into her closet, so they're not around the house, but now I go into her room, and they're everywhere in her room, she missed the point, she, she succeeded at the law, but she missed the point of actually having a heart to obey. And I don't care that the mess is somewhere. I care that there's a mess, period. And, and so this is kind of what Jesus is doing for us. Great, you don't murder, but, but surely you're angry. You may have picked up your socks, but look at your room kind of a thing. And so he's truly trying to make this and bring this into our heart, into our lives. And he's walking into our room, and he's saying, basically, he's looking at the mess that we've made of succeeding at the wrong thing, like not murdering. And he's inviting us into a life which is far greater than what we have made it. Far, with far more significance, with far more meaning than just simply succeeding at something that everyone can say, you know what, I'm good at that. It is a life that flourishes with God. That's what God wants for us. And so what does that look like? It looks like a, a life that doesn't just count wins like not murdering. It counts wins like when I'm angry, what do I do with it? What do I do with the socks that I've picked up? Do I just cram them in the corner and hope they're going to fix themselves and clean themselves in my own heart? Or is there something greater here to be had with the life of Jesus? And he's going to start all of this practical instruction with helping us understand what is in our heart when we're angry. What is it that's in the, the heart of anger? And I would say this, like the message is very timely for us, isn't it? We're in a culture that doesn't just give themselves to anger, but has moralized it into a virtue. That, that we, we are in a culture all, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of taken a little bit of a break, which is nice, at least in my news cycle, which apparently is being fed to me by some sort of uh, math formula. But nonetheless, uh, like it's taken a little bit of break, but it's about to ramp up with all the anger and all the hatred and all the rage that kind of gets put into our face on a regular basis. And if we're not careful, we can moralize it and bring it into a virtue instead of where Jesus puts it. And he equates it with murder. And that's where we start today, is that anger indeed is murder. That's what Jesus says. He says it's murder. He says, great, you've heard it said that um, of old that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He equates anger with murder. And I always ask myself the question, what is gentle Jesus up to in the Sermon on the Mount? What is he up to? Because we think he came to rescue us from our sin, and he did, but he did not do that before indebting us to a deeper pit of sin than we ever thought imagined. And so he says, great, no murdering, but what about your anger? And he equates the two. He's inviting us to think about how we have measured our righteousness, much less how we categorize sin. And so to understand this, I have to ask the question, why did he say, basically, why is he equating angry or an angry person with a murderous person? And I would say this. First, not all anger is murder, right? I'm having to go outside of the text of Matthew 5 to understand this. But not all anger is murder. Otherwise, Jesus would be a murderer. You see angry Jesus in the temple when he flips over the money changers. That's an angry Jesus who's sick and tired of his, his father's house 
being changed into something, a den of robbers, rather than a house of prayer. We've, we've misappropriated what holiness looks like, and Jesus is mad at that, and he's sitting there in the temple making a whip of, of core, a cord of, of, of whip, or whatever it is, and he, he's about to drive them out, right? That's an angry Jesus, so not all anger is murdering. We have to understand that. We also can see it in Ephesians 4, where it says, do, uh, be angry and do not sin. There's, there is a time for anger, but I would say it's far less uh, of a thing that we can run to on a regular basis than what we may uh, think. So it's not all anger is murder, but what makes anger, the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about, murder? It's the emotion of anger coupled with contempt. It's the emotion of anger coupled with contempt. What is contempt? Contempt is when you look at someone and you think they're less than you. You belittle them in your mind. You call them name, like he says here, you fool, you raka uh, in the Greek. You, 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 you empty-minded, empty-hearted person. That's what he's telling us to beware of. And he says, contempt, look, look, contempt is the view that another is beneath you. And then you couple that with a low standard of righteousness, and you have a recipe for anger which belittles another. You want to get vengeance for a perceived wrong? You want to stand up for what you think is right on a consistent basis because it makes you good and it makes you right and it makes the other person wrong or bad. So Jesus' statement here is pretty clear, right? Anger rooted in contempt for another is out of step with the kingdom of God and out of step with the gospel of the kingdom. And so I'll give you this example, very hypothetical example. None of us probably, it won't relate at all, but I'll give it to you anyways. So let's just say you're scrolling through social media in a hypothetical, and someone from church posts something, and you disagree with it, and you think in your mind, what an idiot. Or my favorite, like, like my favorite response usually is, like, I'm good. I don't want anything to do with that. And you're scrolling, right, and you're on there, and you're like, oh, no one cares. Like, give me a break. But you don't express your thoughts on social media because you don't want the drama. So you keep it to yourself, but that's your internal dialogue. What an idiot. Who cares? Uh, man, you go do something else. Not that anybody would ever have these thoughts. And you scroll, and you think, man, I'm not going to respond to that. And because you didn't respond, you kind of think to yourself, man, that's a win right there. I didn't respond. I didn't put my thoughts out there on social media. This is a win. I nailed it. I'm killing it at self-control. And then Jesus comes into the picture and goes, but murder. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is doing for us. He's indebting us to a very common experience of our anger, of us name-calling, of us becoming contemptuous against one another based on some random opinion or, 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 or standard of righteousness that we may scroll or we may see and we start to internally may call one another names and belittle and treat each other with contempt. And Jesus comes into that space and says, you think you're right, but actually it's worse than you ever dreamed. You need a standard of righteousness that exceeds external obedience. It's got to change in your heart. That's what Jesus has come to give us. And why is it that he calls us that? Why is it that he says, man, we're all guilty of murder? 
because we've demeaned our brother and sister as something less than what God sees them as. As number one, a human made in the image of God as you. And number two, if they're Christian, as a blood-bought, adopted son and, or daughter of the king. And so when we say, what an idiot, or you fool, or oh my gosh, I can't believe, he's pulling us into a common indebtedness or a common need for a good and gracious God. When we realize that we have used a bad standard for righteousness, an external low standard, we are faced with our own sin. And when we are faced with our own sin, we have to either continue on in that sin in rebellion and we will not flourish in the kingdom of God or we will repent. And we will begin to flourish in the kingdom of God. Contempt and repentance are incompatible. So when we're talking about anger towards another, we're talking about strife and enmity and conflict that goes unresolved with one another. That is a place that the kingdom will not flourish in our hearts, much less in a community of God. So it's no wonder that Jesus comes onto the scene and says, don't explain this away. Don't just win. Don't think you're winning for, for internal self-control. Instead, there's something far greater here for us to count as a win. A win in which we will truly be transformed in our heart to pursue God's glory and not our own. So what's at the heart of anger, right? Because the bottom line is this. You haven't murdered anyone on the outside, but your insides tell a different story. Those who are marked with anger, which, will, which leads to contempt, do not belong in the kingdom, let alone flourish in it. So then, what is it that's behind anger? The neighborhood group leaders have been given all sorts of uh, resources for this week as we unpack this stuff in our neighborhood groups. Um, but let me just say this and start with this. Anger is just the secondary emotion. Anger is the tip of the iceberg, literally, uh, kind of in the emotional world. So what you see on the outside, what you see on the surface is anger. But beneath the surface are all sorts of other um, uh, other expressions, other emotions, um, disappointment or doubt or, or, or disorientation, anxiety, right? Embarrassment. Disrespect is a good one. And you dissing me? Yeah. Don't disrespect me. And all of a sudden it comes out as anger, anxiety, exhaustion, insecurity, and fear, just to name a few. That's the huge thing underneath the surface that no one is seeing. Instead, they're just seeing someone who is angry. So I'll give you an example from my own life. I literally could probably draw from four or five examples from this week about how I was angry. Um, I always love it that the Lord gives me plenty of opportunities to practice what I am preaching before I preach it. And so this week, was there's no shortage of that. So on Monday, I think my, daughter, my, my son lost uh, his last like, front tooth, right? Um, and we were celebrating. It was a really funny story. And it was hilarious because the way he lost it. And then like the next day, he's riding his bike, and he slams his two front gum teeth on the concrete. Um, and like they come in and he's bleeding and I'm, I'm livid. Like Hulk, angry, livid, have to leave the house angry that he got hit in the place where I, he's like the most vulnerable place. And I'm so angry, I have to leave the house, I have to breathe, I have to go into the garage and I'm just like, oh, oh, why am I so angry in that moment? There's literally nothing that anybody could have done to do anything different for him. There's no, like, there's no negligence. There's no nothing. What is going on? 
the, the, the surface, what's above the surface is me hulking out and having to leave the house. But what's beneath the surface is, well, it's a story. It's a story that, that I had to take some time to process in the garage. Why am I so angry about something that isn't anyone's fault? What is it about him? What is it about my children that bring the best out of me, but could also bring the worst out of me? When I feel like they're threatened, the Hulk comes out, right? And it's no good. Nobody wants to be around that guy. So what happened in the garage was that the Lord just showed me, hey, man, the reason why you're so angry about this, the reason why you're so mad about this, even though it's no one's fault, is because if I look beneath the surface in my own life, if I look at my history, what I will find is that at an early age, I learned that no one's here to protect you. You got to do this on your own, bro. Your mom's at work. Your dad is gone. You got to just, you got to figure out how to protect yourself. Your sister's older than you. She's bringing around older people than you, and they're not always respectful to younger brothers. So you got to rage out to make sure that you get self-protected. And that's what was beneath that rage monster. Y'all seen Dirt Dude Perfect, right? Seen Dude Perfect and the rage monster? I can easily go back into that. That certainly was me as a kid was rage monster, right? I watched that now. Oh, gosh, that's what. Like, I know that's a caricature, but there's a little bit of me that's like, that's probably me. Like, that's what's beneath anger was a little kid that didn't get cared for and has the narrative in his mind to take care of himself. And so it's no wonder that Jesus is inviting us to go below the surface of anger and get beneath the anger into the, the below the surface of all the fear and all the anxiety. It was just my way of keeping things safe. So I think about all that in the garage, and I go, okay, well, surely there's a parallel here for us that underneath the surface, that's where the gold is. And though there's a defender of that gold, right, and his name is anger, and doesn't want us to get there. But we must get there if we're going to flourish in the kingdom of heaven. We have to ask, why is it that we're so angry? That's the, that's the question that, that God asked Jonah outside of the city of Nineveh. At the end of the story, when Jonah goes and preaches the message to Nineveh, and they whole city repents, and he's sitting outside on the hill, and he's complaining about it to God. He's like, I knew you were going to forgive them. I knew you were slow to anger and rich in mercy. I knew you were all the things that you say you are. And God asks him, do you do well to be angry? Why are you so angry, Jonah? A great question for us to consider. In an age of rage, why are we so angry? Are we protecting something? Are we trying to shore something up that we didn't get? Are we standing for a really low bar of righteousness? Oh, you don't do things like me. You're different than me. You have a different personality than me, and I would never do it like that. You have a different priesthood than me, and I would never do it like that. I would never treat people like that. All standards of self, all low standards with which we can rage out on if we're not careful. Jesus is speaking this directly as he instructs us to live as people who desire to flourish in the kingdom. So do you see how anger is secondary? It is a temporary feeling of anxiety or fear or whatever it may be, which leads you to anger or it may be a longstanding wound. So like that was mine, right? Like on, on, on Tuesday or whenever that was, I rage out because of a long-standing, probably a wound from my childhood of going, man, like there's something else at, at play here rather than just my kid knocking his gums on the concrete. I don't want him to knock his gums on the concrete. There's no one I'm mad about. 
There's no one I'm mad uh, about with that. So secondary being this, uh, anger being this secondary emotion that if we, and I was just say this, like, yes, it can be a temporary feeling, but if you find yourself telling yourself the same story about someone else, or if you find yourself telling yourself the same, like you come to the same conclusion about a person or churches or jobs or employers or bosses, and it's just the same story. Like, they don't respect me. Uh, you know, they don't really care for me. You know, that person doesn't really love me. And it's the same story time after time after time after time. It may be time to pause. It may be time to go beneath the surface and kind of just start to discover what wound is telling you the lie that they're not X, Y, or Z. It may be time to discover underneath the surface, why is it that you're so angry? Because if the same narrative keeps coming up again and again and again and again, there may be something in your background that needs to be discovered. And I would say this, the church is a great place. I know the world has lied to us to say that the church can't handle this type of thing. The church is a great place to process that type of wound, that type of difficulty. Find someone that you trust in your neighborhood group. Talk to a pastor, elder, or deacon, or neighborhood group leader. Let's process through those things that are, that are truly below the surface, and they are fueling the iceberg tip of anger. We've got to get below the surface if we're going to become the people of God who are flourishing in the kingdom of God. And why do I say that? Because if we follow Jesus in this passage, he's going to flip everything on its head. Because anger always affects other people. It always has a ripple effect outside. Like if a glacier, if, if some of it falls off and it falls into the water, it's always going to push uh, that energy out towards others. That's anger for us. It will always have an effect on us. So let me just read um, the rest of this passage once again so we can get our mind around it, right? You shall not murder. And then he says this, right? You're liable to judgment. This is a, this is a very serious thing for us. And then in verse 23, if you notice this, he's going to flip it. He's going he's gonna to go from this anger is yours and you have to deal with it. And then he's going to flip it. And he's going to go, so what do you do when people are angry with you? You've got to deal with your own anger. But what do you do when other people are angry with you? Verse 23, he would say this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and therefore remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to him with court, going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand, hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. A.K.A. you're in a debt you don't even know you're in. But you better go get reconciled. So what I love about this um, is that he flips it on us. No longer are we a people that just have to worry about our own anger. Instead, anger always has ripple effects. Even if you're not responsible for the problem and someone else has an issue with you, you have a responsibility to go get reconciled with them. Now, that's like otherworldly instruction about life and the kingdom of heaven. Those that have contempt towards you, you now are responsible to go and make peace with them. So we may think this is all about our own emotions, our own issues, but the life that flourishes in God's kingdom isn't content with a self-improvement or only a personal holiness if it does not impact the kind of holiness that changes a community changes a whole church, changes a whole city. For Jesus and for us, there is nothing more important 
than harmonious, peaceful, reconciled relationships, both within the family of God and without the family of God and outside the family of God. So we may think to ourselves like, well, I mean, it's my own anger. I just got to deal with it. Or we might think to ourselves, look, it's their issue. But let me just say like your community will rot if we don't handle this type of conflict resolution. That's why Jesus says your worship will not count if you don't reconcile first with your brother or your sister. It won't, it, it won't matter a thing if you don't first prioritize harmonious, peaceful, reconciled relationships with other people. And what I love about this is that he flips it on us, right? So again, you may say this, well, I'll go and do that later. That person is mad at me. I'm not mad at them. And, and, and Jesus is telling us, no, we, he takes no pleasure in empty praise. You can't put this off and go, well, I'll go to church first and get right, and then I'll go and reconcile with those people over there, or that person over there. Jesus is not satisfied with that. First, go be reconciled with your brother, and then come you give your gift at the altar. You may say, well, I'm not even the one that's mad, so we're good. No, no. Jesus says, now that you know, you have the responsibility to go to that person and shore things up. And you may say this, well, I mean, I'm, I don't even really know if they have something against me. I kind of just heard it through the grapevine. Yeah, but now that you might think they do, go shore it up. You have a responsibility as a Christian, as a person who is loved by God, to make sure there's no enmity or strife in the family of God. And you may say, you know what, I'm not even supposed to know that they have an issue with me. Right? Somebody else told me that they have an issue with me. This is, you know, so-and-so told me about this person who has an issue with me. You are responsible to at least go and make sure it's only a rumor. This is the community and the family of God, and we, if we are going to live like brothers and sisters, we can't sit down at the dinner table and avoid talking the whole time, only to go watch your favorite show after that. That's not how this works. It's we're going to come to the table, we're going to have awkward conversations, and we're going to make sure that we're all good so that we can truly love one another as Jesus has loved us. So he's showing us th at least three things in this passage that I think are interesting for us. Number one, Jesus is radically against division. Completely, radically against division. He says, put your worship on hold until you get reconciled with one another. That's a radical statement by God himself. So don't come to me until you have figured out how to get along and be peaceful with one another. That's a radical statement against bitterness, bitterness and grudges and enmity and strife and of long-standing relationships which have eroded into hatred. He doesn't much care if you're right or wrong, if you notice. He cares that you settle the matter quickly. Go negotiate if you have to. Come to terms, but do so quickly. He is radically against division. Second, he knows that we would hide behind emotional triangles. So um, Edwin Friedman is a, a, a rabbi that has since passed away, but he's written on this extensively. And he talks about emotional triangles within, the, within really any faith community or any community uh, uh, at all. An emotional triangle is this. When a situation between two people can be handled between two people, but then you got to bring a friend in just to, just to make sure you're good, just so they can help you process, just so that, that they can pray for you as you go and talk to that other person, right? This never happens, though, right? You good? Y'all are all staring at me like I'm purple right now. 
This is my favorite part. Right? This is the reality of life, that we, we can't make these excuses to bring other people in to kind of get, get sucked into emotional triangles. We don't really want help when we do that. We know what we need to do. Because a humble person, you don't, see, when you go to someone else and you get an emotional triangle, what you want to be affirmed of is that you're right. And therefore, you're not interested in reconciliation, you're interested in retribution. And so you want to get back at this person because, oh, I got somebody else that, that agrees with me about how you are, and now I got an ally in this fight. See, a person that doesn't care if they're right or wrong goes to the person and says, hey, I could be wrong about this. But the other day, when you did X, Y, or Z, man, that really hurt me. Now there's a vulnerability there. You're not so interested in being right or wrong. You're there to actually work it out and actually work through and talk through some of the heavier and deeper issues that you need to work through. See, when you bring in an emotional ally, an emotional triangle, what we're all doing, truly, is that for that just to be affirmed. We want to, someone to agree with us. We want to have company when we treat one another with content. We want someone to make us feel important. We want to win someone to our cause. And the bottom line is we truly just want payback. So, students, if you're in the house, I don't care if you're first grade all the way up to 12th grade or beyond, right? If you're, if you're caught in a triangle, which you will be, rest assured, it's only a matter of time before the person that brought you into the triangle because they trust you with their pain, it's only a matter of time before that person is triangulating against you. It's only a matter of time. So when you think that you're in this triangle of trust, you're not. Or you may be only temporarily there. Sooner or later, you will do something against that person and you will be triangulated against. And so you may find a little bit of temporary solace or, 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 or comfort in that moment. But there's something far greater to be had if you will just stop it and go, hey, I appreciate you coming to me about this. It means you trust me and I trust you. But I think it would be better if you actually went to that person. And actually, Jesus wants you to go to that person and settle the matter quickly. Could you imagine what your middle school would do to you? You'd be out. If you were in high school, you'd be kicked out. You'd be kicked out of the club immediately. Jesus says it's better for you to be persecuted than to begin with the wrong crowd. It's better for you to be pushed out with me than be brought in with those that could care less about the virtues of the kingdom of heaven. We must not settle for less in these ways. Make no mistake, we will be pulled into those moments, and then it will be switched against us. And it's not just the community of God. It's not just unity that's at stake. It's our witness to the world. So this week, um, I was coaching baseball, or was it last week? I don't remember. But at some point, I was coaching baseball, and the other team was on the infield, taking infield practice, and hitting off the batting machine when we showed up. And if you don't know this, if you're going to coach baseball, that's a no-no. It's not in any rules. Okay, that's just an unspoken, weird rule of baseball that we have that you just don't do, right? And so I pulled up, and there's like four other parents that are staring at me that I know. They're like, can you believe they're in the infield doing infield practice right now? I'm like, I know. What's up with that? And then one of them looks at me and goes, well, I guess the board's going to hear about this. And I said, why would I go over his head when I can go to his face? And they looked at me, and they go, I like your style. I like your style. Why don't you go on then? And I went over to him and I said, hey, man, like, I'm cool. You're, you and me are cool. But if you do this with all these other coaches that are super about baseball right in here, they're not going to be cool with this. They'll report you, and I, I don't want that for you. But, like, this kind of gives you guys an unfair advantage. 
for the pitching machine that you just get hit off of and all these other little things. And so, you know, just you probably don't want to do that in the future. You say, oh, dude, I had no idea. Yeah, man, it's cool. I didn't even have any idea. It's fine. It's all good. So if I'm, if I'm not studying, if I'm not understanding of what the scriptures tell me, I've just gone to the board and gone, well, I mean, I don't get paid for this, and they don't get paid for it either, but you're in a position of leadership, so the pain's on you, bro. Go take care of it. But instead, I'm trying to live in the kingdom. We're trying to live in the kingdom. And when people that look at us trying to live in the kingdom, and they see us doing hard things for the king's glory and not our own, they look at us and they say, man, I like that. I like that style. And I don't care if you like my style. I care if you want to be with my Jesus, with my Savior, with my king. That's what I care about far more than anything else. You see, Jesus is radically against division. He also knew that we would hide behind emotional triangles, so we've got to instead make them rectangles or parallels or whatever you want to call them, but go face-to-face with that person and do so quickly, right? So the third thing is, he knows this is the secret sauce for our growth. If you've ever uh, been faced with this reality that I need to go talk to the person instead of go talk about the person, you are faced with an idol, You're faced with that idol of a fear of man, fear of rejection, fear of failing, whatever it may be. Where in that moment, you are going to either serve the idol or serve Jesus. Did you know that the most Googled uh, phobia of 2020, do you know what it is? Fear of other people. The most Googled phobia of 2020 is fear of other people. We are afraid of one another, whether it be because of a disease or a virus or whatever it may be, or it's because we don't want to disappoint one another. We're going to hurt one another. We're going to do whatever. The most feared phobia of 2020 is a fear of other people. But this is the secret sauce for our growth. Jesus knows that when we have to wrestle through how to say something, we're becoming more gentle by the moment. When we have to wrestle through, can I say that and get away with it? Or do I need to wrestle through my emotions a little bit more? Do I need to look beyond the tip of the iceberg and into the the, the heart of the matter? That's the place where we grow the most. And so when we short circuit that, we go around it and we start to talk about someone instead of to someone, we're actually short circuiting not just unity, but also our own growth and dependence upon the Lord. And that's the thing where we're really going to truly value what flourishing in the kingdom really is. I wonder if he'll do that. So to turn the page and to finish up, I got three R's for us as application points. Three R's. First one is this. Realize this. What can we do with all this? Three R's. We need to realize that under the emotion of anger is the desire for murder. (laughs) That's what's underneath it. But there's something here that we want retribution, we want payback, we want vengeance, whatever it may be. So we can't minimize our anger because Jesus maximizes it and said, there's something deeper here that you need to get to. It's perhaps time to pause and not just figure out why or who we're mad at, but why we're mad at those consistent people on a regular basis. So a good question to ask is like, who have you held in contempt, even in your mind, as less than you, due to a dispute or disagreement or just differences. Like, I don't hear a lot of disputes in, in, in like, this church about about differences of opinion. We're pretty good at listening to one another. The the disputes I hear are that we're actually different than one another. Your gifts are prophecy, and so that ruffles my feathers, and I don't like you because of that. Your gift is hospitality, and so I'm going to be envious of you on how you can love other people. And, oh, yeah, everybody wants to be like that person. 
there's an enviousness or a covetousness. That's the, that's the difficulty that I see more often than not, is differences, not disagreements. So can we celebrate one another's differences? Can we celebrate that God truly has given us a, a measure of the gift that he wants to give us, and it's up to him? Can we celebrate that God has gifted other people differently, both in personality and in priesthood and in gifting and in experience and in all the things that make that person unique? Can we celebrate that even though it's radically different than us? They're introverts, I'm extrovert. You're extrovert, I'm introvert. Or just you're a prophet and I'm a shepherd. I mean, you name it, and there are ways that we can find differences to argue over. But when we see those as truly God-given gifts in one another's priesthood, Will we rebel against one another? Will we accuse one another just because simply they're different? Will we realize there's something underneath our anger? Number two, repent. For those who flourish, it says, those who want to flourish in the kingdom of heaven, blessed are you who, who are meek. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are not ravenous for self-righteousness. They are not hoarders of their own righteousness, but they are repentant and therefore dependent upon God and His Spirit to reveal to themselves where they are wrong and to reveal in the other person where they are wrong in the Spirit's time. As you repent, don't demand that others do the same. Depend on the Spirit to do His work in His time. And instead, my favorite saying in marriage, my favorite saying in friendship, my favorite saying in any relationship is, you own 100% of whatever percent. Be repentant of 100% of, if you don't think you're only 1% wrong in this argument, own 100% of that 1%. And when you own 100% of that 1%, you can be repentant, you can be dependent upon God for His grace and His mercy, and you can relate out of that repentance and seek reconciliation. But as long as we're standing proud on our 99%, we will be disunified. We will find ourselves going in opposite directions. And Jesus says we're liable to judgment when we start to do these things and hold one another in contempt. Realize, repent, and then reconcile. I don't think I have this on the screen, but Romans 12, verse 18, says this. Um, bring it up, Andrew, if you can. Right, So we forgive. We're called to be people of forgiveness. We're also called to be people of, of reconciliation. But God put this verse in the Bible for a reason in Romans 12, verse 18. He says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I love this verse more than you might know. Because within the, 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 the kingdom of God, within this gospel of the kingdom, it's calling us to flourish, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, go and be reconciled. Go do it quickly. Otherwise, you'll be in, in prison. You'll never pay the last penny, right? Go and be people of, of reconciliation. But there's also Romans 12, 18 that says there are limits, though, right? We're called to forgive the other person, but that's a one-way street. But reconciliation is a two-way street. And, and and there's mercy here in the scriptures that says, if possible. It may not always be possible to reconcile. It can be possible on your end, so don't make excuses like, well, it's not really ideal right now. No, if it's at all possible, if there's any little sliver of hope, if there's possibility for reconciliation, go and do so. As far as it depends on you, but there is a limit to reconciliation. It has to be both and, not just either or. As far as it depends on you, you do whatever it takes to live at peace with that person. You don't go triangulate. You go straight 
to the person if you need to, and you seek reconciliation and humility and dependence after repenting of whatever percent, of 100% of whatever percent, right? There's a limit here, though, that some people are not interested in reconciling with you, just like you may not be interested in reconciling with someone else. And then he says, do so with all. We don't get to pick and choose. Oh, well, that person hurt me real bad, so they don't deserve this kind of reconciliation. We don't get to pick and choose. With all people, he says, pursue this type of reconciliation that if possible, not if ideal, if possible, as far as it depends on you, do whatever it takes. Go all the way to the end of your limit to pursue reconciliation. Do so with all people, with all people that have hurt you in all sorts of kinds of ways. So this is a difficult word for so many different reasons. But we can't sit uh, on the outside kind of excusing our anger. We also can't sit on the outside going, well, that's their problem. That's their anger against me. I'll just wait for them to come to me. God is removing us from all sorts of types of excuses to pursue the community of God that God has set forth for us in his son. The question is, will we seize it? It won't just, won't just land in our lap. This is all hard, difficult, relational work. But will we seize this by God's grace? Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful that you have come to give us a different standard. We're grateful that you have come to give us a different standard of what we call a win. It's not just not murdering, it's also being people that deal with anger. How do we deal with anger? What is it that we're angry about? Why are we angry at that person? And then what do we do with it, Lord? So we can't do any of this by, without you. We can't, do, we can't obey one dot, one iota of any law, New Testament or old, without your spirit, without your spirit of re- resurrection, without your spirit of mercy, without your spirit of wisdom, without your spirit of truth in us, guiding us, comforting us, and helping us do these things. What you put before us today is, is, is just downright impossible without you. And so, Lord, as we respond in faith through song, uh, I pray, Lord, that you, O Holy Spirit, would, would truly um, be our counselor, be our comforter, be, be, be he who convicts us of sin and of wrongdoing. Not so that we can adhere to some new law. That's not the point. That's like putting socks in the corner but so that we can, Lord, be people that have hearts that want to obey you fully, wholeheartedly. And so you call us to go reconcile with people that are mad at us. We don't even have an issue with them. We'll go do it. And kicking a hornet's nest and don't want the drama or all excuses that we got to put aside in order for us to honor you, in order for the kingdom of true human flourishing to take root in our hearts. So Holy Spirit, help us. Guide us, comfort us, be our only hope, and help us in the road ahead. We trust you, and we love you in Jesus' name.